Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this specialist series, Explore How to Plan an Expedition, a series created for the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. Those of you who don't listen to the Adventure Podcast regularly, I'm Matt Pycroft and I'm the Vice President representing membership at the Society. I'm also a filmmaker, photographer, remote location specialist, and I've been going on expeditions under the banners of adventure, exploration, science, conservation and discovery for 15 years. In this episode, I speak with Felicity Aston, Nigel Windsor and Steve Jones about the five P's, which are proper planning prevents poor performance. The vast majority of the time, expeditions are won or lost in the planning stage, and I vividly remember being stood on a runway with rock climber and alpinist Leo Holding in Greenland as we were about to head on a big wall climbing expedition. I said to him, right then, time to get started. Leo has been something of a mentor to me for a long time, and he smiled and looked at me and said, this isn't the start, we're halfway. I didn't know what he meant at the time, but I quickly realised he'd spent a year planning this. For him, as the person responsible for dreaming this up and getting us to Greenland, this was halfway. In this episode, our guests speak to that point specifically. The expeditions begin with a notebook or a spreadsheet. We also discuss a whole variety of subjects, including methods of team selection, common pitfalls, and what advice and resources are out there. At the core of this episode is lessons on the practicalities and logistics of expedition planning. Finally, if you're looking for support with planning your own expedition or field research project, then head to rgs.org to begin the journey. Right, let's get started with episode two of Explore How to Plan an Expedition. Okay, let's get started. Please, could you begin by introducing yourself? My name's Felicity Aston, and I'm a polar explorer, which means I've been putting together expeditions mostly to cold places now for more than 25 years. Yeah. How did I get to be a polar explorer? I, you know, the pithy response, I guess, is that I just followed my passion. You know, I found those opportunities and the, to do the things that I wanted to do and that I felt passionate about. And, uh, yeah, sort of nearly 30 years later, I can look back on it all and say, yeah, that kind of made a career of sorts. Thank you. And Nigel, please, can you introduce yourself? Um, Nigel Windsor. I'm a life scientist by training, uh, born in Kenya, but had a, uh, an urge to go exploring uh, in my university days. And that led to me coming to the society back in 1973. Would you believe? I suppose it really started um, when I was a young boy in Kenya doing expeditions up Mount Elgin and other places like that with my pa and being shown the awe and wonder of nature in its, in its original form. But uh, my expedition career after my gold Duke of Edinburgh's Award <laughs> expedition uh, following the canals uh, across the UK... Um, my first undergraduate's expeditions were crossing the Sahara in, look, in search of invertebrates for the Naturalist Museum. Then in 74, doing a river-based uh, survey of the West Ethiopian forests in the Ulubabal province with a multidisciplinary team. And then my last trip as an undergraduate was doing a survey of the river island forests of the Tana River uh, in Kenya. And finally, Steve, please, can you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Steve Jones. I do several different things. I'm, my main work is being the expeditions manager for Antarctic logistics and expeditions, which means I'm a main point of contact for anyone who is thinking about or planning an independent expedition to Antarctica 
um, using the logistics and services of ALE. I'm also a council member and trustee of the Royal Geographical Society and frequent speaker at their Explore Expedition weekend in November. I'm part of a member of a teaching faculty of World Extreme Medicine, and I also do my own um, public speaking and talking and lecturing to different audiences around the place. Uh, I've been working in going on expeditions, which led on to managing expeditions and then operations management and Antarctic base management for most of my adult life. I would summarize by saying I spent my 20s mountaineering, my late 20s and 30s leading expeditions primarily for Rally International and then other youth organizations in most continents, except Australia and then Antarctica. And since my 40s onwards have been spent mainly doing polar things and organizing, guiding, and then that led on to what I do now, which is uh, supporting other people and helping facilitate other people's expeditions. And this might seem like a silly or obvious question, but I don't think it is. I think it's really important, actually, to define the terms. When we say expedition planning, what do we actually mean by that? What's technically involved? It's really, uh, it's really project management. Planning an expedition and going on an expedition or going from the idea to departure and carrying it out is a project. It's project management. And all of the elements involved in applying yourself to do something professionally into a high standard at work relate to an expedition, even if it's for fun and adventure and for your own own enjoyment, whether it has any great sense of purpose or not. So you need to recruit your staff. You, you can draw, think of it as in lots of parallels to starting a new business. You need to recruit a team. You need to, if you're organizing it, if it's your idea, you need to put finances in place. You need to work out what the budget's going to be. You need to prepare for the, the launch of your new business, which is the departure on the ex- expedition. And all of, all of those things um, take, take time and planning and require a bit of, a bit of work and some, some documentary support. And Felicity, I think there's this misconception that the world is fully mapped and explored. What do you think? Is there anything left to explore? You know, I get quite annoyed when people refer to uh, the early 20th century as the golden era of exploration. I mean, we are facing a new era of exploration where there is nothing less at stake than saving our planet and saving our species. How much more heroic do you need it to be? I mean, you know, forget superhero movies. They're flying around in their capes, you know, saving the world. We literally have to save the world right now and we know exactly how we can do it. And, uh, you know, if you don't, I, I can't, if you need a bigger call to action than that, then there's really no hope. Is there? So, you know, I, I think this is a hugely exciting time and there's never been more need for exploration and expeditions and uh, and field work than, than there is right now. We get uh, living in a digital area, there's lots of problems, there's lots of negatives to social media, but, you know, a hundred or so years ago, explorers would go off and you'd be like, oh yeah, bye, you know, see you in three years and you might have something interesting to tell us. You know, now I can unzip my tent in the middle of the East Antarctic ice sheet and tell you what I'm seeing right this minute and you will hear it on the train into work or sitting over your breakfast table or whatever you're doing. Um, And that's incredible, you know, that uh, um, 
ability to share information and share insight and share the human experience. You know, we can live several lifetimes in one right now because we can live vicariously and know so much about uh, far-flung corners of our planet. And that wasn't possible to do that before. So um, I think this is a really exciting time to, to be involved in exploration and expeditions. And Nigel, when it comes to planning an expedition or developing a concept, is it as simple as sitting down in a quiet corner with a pen and a piece of paper? Or does it need to be bigger than that? One of the great joys of being part of the society and its annual explore gathering is to sit down with people who have just turned up and not quite sure what they want to do. But you can see in them there's that urge, the curiosity, so I'd love to go back and ask questions like, what's your passion? What's your career path? What is your expedition picture? You know, is it two people on top of the mountain? Or is it a team of people doing work in rainforests with local communities? Do you see? And teasing that out begins to shape something that might fit as a, a bit of a quest. Then I say... Um, go and do the reading, go and do the homework. So I'm really interested in learning more about um, invertebrates of Borneo, say, because they're doing po postgraduate studies on, on tropical forests. I say, go and read this reference or go and do research on teams that have done previous work. And the nice thing about coming to the RGS, it can be a gateposting to who's done what, where, when over the last 100 years. That will usually point to a group locally, a local community. And the opportunity to work, work with a local community to co-create, co-design, co-complete and co-publish a, a project is a good start. Then the most important thing is to go and find a quiet corner. You need two other things, a pencil and a notebook. And you sit down and you list some of the things that you would like to do. You literally list, you make that list, then close the notebook. You come back to the next day, don't look at the first page, make the list again. And very soon, what will emerge is a, a, a general compass bearing on what you and individually want to do. It'll be inspired by the people you've met, I promise you. So if you've, if, you've, if you've met someone who makes this flower the most exciting thing to, to study, that will inspire you. And you meet those people at, at school, at university, at places like here. So that will be a real driving force. Once you've got to that, then you can begin the process of converting that into your very own project. And the moment you do that, you say you have to, in a sense, put the process of planning it into action. And there's some good literature in the RGS website on the actual process of that. And Felicity, same question to you. My first thought when asked, okay, about giving advice on, on planning an expedition is to absolutely emphasise that there is no recipe for doing this, that it's not a, a one recipe fits all. You know, there are so many different approaches to planning an expedition and there is no right way. So I get really worried when I'm talking to people that are planning an expedition and they're trying to 
get some kind of step-by-step list or a sort of paint-by-numbers idea of how should I plan this expedition. I think where you need to start is you need to sit down and make your own framework of what do I need to do in order to get me to where I want to be with this idea, with this ambition, um, you know, whatever phase you are in of that, of that planning. Um, because it could be very different, you know, even in my own expeditions, there's been expeditions where I really haven't done much planning at all until I've got the team together, for example, because it's all been about, well, you know, what is important to that team. Whereas other, um, projects, it's about achieving a very specific goal. And then you put people in around that goal in order to, to achieve that. So I think the first stage in your planning is to really throw off any sense of I'm going to do what somebody else has done, you know, and just sit down and think for yourself about what, what do I need to do? You know, how, how do I need to get from where I am now to where I want to be? And what are the first steps I need, I need to do? But yeah, that can be as simple as sitting with a pen and a paper on a train, but you don't even need pen and paper, <laughs> you know, any, any, anywhere, anyhow that you do it. Um, you know, some of my first stages of planning that have been most useful is having a really good conversation with someone that I trust and whose ideas I value. Um, and, uh, and that I know isn't going to be dismissive or judgmental, you know, that I feel safe with and having a really good conversation, um, can sometimes be the the best start to to planning a really great project. And finally, Steve, what are your views on the first steps to planning an expedition? I think you've got to start with the money because if you can't afford it, you can't do it. And one of my top recommendations for people going on their first expedition is to go on an expedition that you can finance yourself, that you can self-fund. Start small, it's great to have success and you'll gain experience, you gain credibility for going and doing more ambitious things later. And you don't need to be sh- trying to get to the moon on your first expedition. So start small, do something you can self-fund. And then the next thing I would do is prepare a list of all, all the jobs that need to be done and a timeline. And one of the really important things is what's the t- what is a sort of critical path, if you like, a, a, a timeline of key events between having the idea and going to the airport to get on the plane to go on the expedition. And Felicity, to what extent do you think an expedition requires a primary aim or a purpose and maybe an end goal? That for me is a really simple question. Unless you have a purpose to your journey, then it is traveling. And, you know, that that's great. You know, you're traveling for enjoyment, you're traveling to enrich your experience. But, you know, if it doesn't have a purpose, and I would perhaps go even further than that and say it's it's then got to be a purpose that is shared with others you know you have to be bringing something back or contributing to something while you're there or you know changing or altering something for the better um but you know that's all wrapped up in in purpose um you know that for me in a nutshell if i had to define it is the difference between exploring and expeditions and travel um it is the purpose and the fact that you are you are bringing something back, making something better, that you are enriching others by doing that that journey or um, that expedition. Um, and, you know, scientific fieldwork, that's an easy way, but, you know, the, the oh, easy, that, that came out all wrong. I don't mean to say it's easy. Um, yeah, expedition fieldwork is often the first 
way to do that that springs into people's minds. But, you know, there are endless different ways to um, add purpose to a journey, which therefore makes it an expedition. And one of the things I love about the era of expedition that we're in at the minute, the era of exploration we're in at the minute, is that there are so many more inventive ways to add purpose to journeys. And, you know, there are so many expeditions out there that have really left me feeling excited and motivated and um, enthused because they've thought so differently and so cleverly about, you know, what, what is our purpose in, in doing this? One of the things I strongly recommend everybody does is, is at an early expedition meeting is get out a pen and paper or a laptop and say, right, we are going to write down and agree the words of what the purpose of this expedition is, its principal aim and its supporting objectives. And if you, because you've attracted people to who think, oh, going to New Britain, somewhere near Papua Guinea, sounds very exciting to me. I've never been there. I've read a book about it once, so I saw a film and I want to go. And you go around the room and said, right, the purpose of this project is to go and do your main, your, your field work, looking at whispers. You're going to, it's, it's a botany project to, to it's, it's part of Southeast Asia, and it's botany looking at, at, at orchids. Okay, next person round. Uh, what are your personal reasons for wanting to come? I think my grandfather was there in the Second World War, and I wanted to go and retrace his footsteps. And, and okay, how do we make that compatible? Because actually where he was was on another island or on the other side of the island or wherever it is. Okay, that's really difficult. And okay, the next person, what, what, why do you want to come and what, to, what, can, what are your supporting objectives? Do you support the main aim? And what, you, what else do you want to do whilst you're there? It says, oh, well, I want to, I, I want to make a film about it or I want to, I'm, I'm trying to get, I'm finished my first travel book. And uh, well, okay, well, how many hours a day are you going to spend needing to do that and not writing up the field notes? So you go around and you need buy-in. It may be, everyone says, oh, that's, been, that's amazing. Oh, we'd love to go and build in some more time to go and see where your grandfather was. Or, or yeah, I support you making the film or writing your book. But, but by writing it down as supporting objectives and everybody knowing that they can't then spring something onto the table at the last minute or tell you that you know, they've, they've got another reason to be going which I haven't told you about, which happens quite a lot. Uh, it's, it's re it sounds really dull, but it's really effective. It, and it can take a long time. So, Nigel, we've got an idea. What do we do now? Do we just start looking for money? I don't think you should go hunting for money <clears throat> until you've got the confidence of why you want to do it. And I love doing mock interviews with, with my people I'm mentoring. So, okay, now, now and I say, well, let's, let's just run through. Um, I say, have you got a map of your, where you're going? <laughs> and, um, you know, what's your patch? Is it a square meter? Is it ten square meters? You know, where where is the earth? What's your what's your methodology? What um, who, who's who's helped you design the bird survey? That kind of stuff. Now, all that is research you can start doing tomorrow. You don't need to start planning an expedition. You have to have that into your DNA as an explorer. Then you carry that around in your outsack of life, as it were. So I think to answer your question, it's get online, do research, one. That will only give you a certain amount. Two, come and meet people. It's really important that you, life is meeting, that you, you share these ideas in, in the common room, in the pub, in your, wherever you are, 
but one of the blessed places to do it. And I think, you know, it ties in one of the reasons why I'm proud to be sitting here is to be thinking about the future generation of Explore of young activists coming in and say, yes, I want to be part of this mission. And then you'll meet, I promise you, <laughs> you'll be sitting next to you, well, the person says, no, 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 don't. Don't worry about puffins. Come and do this. And then you suddenly find. Now, getting that into uh, um, you know, the next stage, then all you do is this. You write it down as a plan. Or you put it down as a, a deck, or whatever way, and you then share it with your immediate stakeholders. Say, guys, are we on track? Um, I'm, I'm very, very excited by a young team doing biodiversity work uh, led by the Maasai and a couple of Oxford and Durham undergraduates next summer, next year. And they're in that process of agreeing the deck which they co-create. Once you've got that right, then you can go and start fundraising. So in terms of fundraising, it says, uh, who, who might be interested in the data we're collecting? Well, let's look and see who's funded who, people in the past. And a lot of grants will come to places where the grant-giving organizations and the list of grant-giving organizations that's on the RGS database is a good start. But if you're in a university, go and talk to the people who funded trips in the past four or five years, get a hold of those past reports and say, gosh, these are the people who funded us in the past, let's go and ask them. And then when you have a chance, you, you write to... Uh, Matt Pycroft, and you say, um, Matt, you were very supportive to the team last year. Um, please find attached um, our proposal. Um, would you be interested? Would you like to be involved? And you've got to just have the confidence to ask politely. But I think when you're young and you ask nicely and you ask in an informed way and your purpose is clear, you'll be amazed how many of you have come out of the work and say, they say, yes, I'd like to help you. So what actually goes into this? How do you create that plan? So you say, the aim of my expedition or my field science project or my geographical survey is, and then it's one line. And then you say, I then want to, to support that with a number of, of supporting objectives. So one aim and several supporting objectives. Then you test that out on one or two of your colleagues. You say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? And if they say, wow, that's really exciting. And you say, would you like to join me? <laughs> and that's how you start. To, and if you've got a consensus on what the aim is and the supporting objectives, then you have the framework to start building the timeline, who get, who's going to join the team. Hopefully half the team are local. Set that goal. Set the goal that the... Your client is the planet, not your organization, not the company you're working or whatever it is. It, your client is, is the planet and humanity, if you like. So the results go back and help whoever, wherever you're having the privilege to explore. But if you can do that, then suddenly there's a whole world opens up in terms of literature, funding, um, resources. And there's also magic. The moment you... You have to make light, luck in life, right? And when you're meeting somebody on the tube and they say, well, what are you up to these days? Well, actually, I'm planning to go and do a, a new survey of puffins in Scotland. Wow, um, I was there last week. <laughs> you must go and stay in this pub. 
because they've got a good map to get you. Do you see, that'll happen. I promise you, there's a magic happens. The moment you, you set a compass bearing, you'll be amazed what comes out of the work. So you have to believe in that. The other thing I think is really important to say is don't bite off more than you can chew. There are certain um, uh, certain ways to do things that always remain constant. I mean, you know, making endless lists, lists on lists on lists on lists. That's what I do. And, you know, I'm never far from about a dozen different lists for different things. So lists within lists. Um, so have your own system. And, you know, I carry around a notebook all of the time and that's got everything in it. And if I ever lose it, I would, you know, be completely lost. Um, so, you know, other people go, no, no, you need to have spreadsheets and you need to have, you know, these um, different documents that you can get, expedition planning documents, and that works for other people. Um but, you know, yeah, that one constant for me is having lots of lists and just thinking things through. Uh, we play a game uh, quite a lot uh, within our expedition teams, uh, the what if game. And it's going through spreadsheets and lists of equipment or whatever and just asking what if, OK, what if this breaks? What are we going to do? Um, what if the weather is rubbish and we can't get to where we are? What if we're really slow? What if we're really fast? You know, asking as many what ifs as you possibly can. But it does make me laugh when sometimes explorers get put in the camp of um, adrenaline junkies and extruder. And you think <laughs> there, is, there is very little kind of rash risk-taking. It's all about pre-planning. I mean, every expedition that happens, there's at least a year, if not three or four, of planning and preparation that's gone into it. And every aspect, every move that you make has been thought about and gone over and rehearsed and practiced. And um, so, you know, if you are not of that temperament, then you need to find a way to achieve the same endpoint um, where you're doing everything in a, as successful and safe a way as possible. Um, but you know, if you don't like a spreadsheet, find a different way of doing it. But what, there are some constants in that you do have to think things through. You do have to, um, you know, think of lots of plan Bs. Um, but, you know, the start of all of that for me is always a good list. And Steve, we all know that expeditions vary in size and scale. But to what extent do you think it's important to have kind of a day-by-day -day or even hour-by-hour -hour broken down operations plan? It is important. It is important. It's valuable because if you, if you, but more important is to be managing the situation and managing the team of people that you're with. And what I mean by that in practical terms is as if you're the leader organizer, you're probably the one getting the information or, or, or finding out about circumstances which have changed. And it's really easy to forget to tell everybody else. But, but, but plans, just, just to call, if you're all in the same place, you're in earshot, call a quick meeting, bring people together and say, got this is new information, situation has changed, let's have a discussion about what we're going to do and what our options are. And remember, everybody involves, if you involve people in decision-making, they buy into it. So it's a really good bit of management to do throughout the expedition is to have daily meetings, team meetings, whatever you want to call them, perhaps in the evening, perhaps in the morning, or do a planning thing in the evening and then get together first thing in the morning and, and just check everything's okay and on track. But consult with people, make people feel involved and give them a chance to talk. And several things will happen. The team will be loyal because they feel involved 
and the quality of the decision making will be vastly better because you've got the got the knowledge of everybody on the team and not just one person problem solving. And it's very easy as a leader, I think, to think, oh, it's my it's my responsibility. I'm a leader. It's my responsibility to find you know to present a solution and prepare pretend to be all knowing and infallible. But you're not, and you're all there with different sets of skills and different experiences. And many people on an expedition have got life experiences which might suddenly be very useful. So just yeah, have a quick meeting, get people get people together, ask their opinion and their ideas, and work it out from there. And Steve, I'm very conscious that most people listening to this will be thinking about planning their first expedition. And we're giving them lots of information and telling them all the things they need to do, many of which they'll have never done before. Is there support that exists to help with this? And are there ways of paying people to help you out with these things? Yes, I think is the answer to, to, to both. Particularly, uh, but I, yeah, yes, you can pay people to do, to do a plan, but I, I, I think it... As we have picked up from lots of anecdotes from coconuts falling on your head and, and missing that missing risk assessment, you you need specific knowledge. So I was uh, asked very recently to get involved in planning of uh, a desert expedition, and and I I thought the best thing I can do is is introduce the team to some desert expedition experts I know because it's I, I it's, it's it's not my area of expertise. Uh, but you don't need to be paying people to start with. Uh, one of the things I hope people will take on board from, from, from this podcast series is it's exciting and interesting and rewarding project-type management to take on board yourself. And you can get a long way by, by asking people for help. And as we've already said, there's nowhere in the world where people haven't been before on expeditions or doing field work. And most people... If you ask them for some, for say, I'm, I saw you went to, where it was, Iceland in, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and I want to go back and do some, do some similar field work, please could I ask you a few questions about it? Almost everybody is going to be pleased to say yes, particularly if you've actually got some detailed or specific questions to ask rather than just <laughs> starting with, with, the most, with the most vague generalizations. Uh, so... And one of, one of the lessons I learned from a, a, a friend of mine who's uh, an extreme adventure racer was he collated a whole list of experts to speak to. He wrote down all the questions that he wanted to ask and he tabulated the answers. So he'd ask four or five experts the same question and then would see what the answers were. And that was, that's a really good thing to do as, do as well. And Nigel, when you're looking to design an expedition or project, or when you're advising someone on a project, how important is it to look at what's come before and at what's actually needed? Yeah, Matt, you've put your finger on the fact that it would be wrong to do a trip somewhere where you haven't done your homework on who's been there before. I think that's where local knowledge is critical. Um, published literature is also critical. And also what's the best best methodologies to do so you can make sure the data you're collecting gets into the right databases. Um, perhaps I will perhaps go back on myself and say, don't beat yourself up too much if you don't tick all the boxes. <laughs> do you see? I think that's where your ethics comes up. Sometimes let's just go and let's go and do some invertebrate studies of of the new forest as a, as a team. Let's Give the, share those with one of the wildlife trusts. 
So it could be really local. Don't be, don't be, in fact, I would argue that one of the great joys now, why I'm so positive that the future is bright, is that we've got initiatives such as the new Natural History um, GCSE inspiring at a school level what was traditionally done as nature studies now being built into core curriculum training. Tick, it's not rocket science. And I think it comes back to um, a lovely reference that I've um, used often. Conrad Lorenz wrote that lovely book called The Waning of Humaneness, basically talking about how we're losing touch. And his thesis was this, nature is so complex we will never ever understand it. But if we want to begin to understand it, we must do three things. Be as close as possible to nature for as long as possible. And here's the punchline at the earliest possible age. So I think our exploration starts in our gardens or in our little park as young explorers. And then it grows. And if there's excitement and awe and wonder, and you you do what you you do it at low cost, it, it would grow. And Felicity, one of the biggest and most critical questions of all: How do you go about putting together a team? I mean, the more that I've been involved in putting together teams, um, this is probably not very helpful to say, but the the more I'm becoming to believe that there's a large element of luck in this. You know, I mean, humans are complex individuals. And until you have been alongside someone in those worst of moments, um, you really can't tell, you know, how this is going to turn out. And that's why I think uh, relationships that are made on expeditions are peculiar, peculiarly strong. You know, you maybe don't see that person again for 10, 20 years, but when you do, you have that same bond because you have seen that person at their most naked. You know, you've seen them when they're vulnerable, tired, far from home, cold, hungry, scared, maybe behaving strangely themselves for any number of reasons and under pressure. Um, and that's something that even their closest friends and family maybe never see them at, at that moment. And, uh, and you know, what's really wonderful is that more often when you see people um, and when you're seeing yourself in those moments, what you're left with is an impression of just how incredible human beings can be. You know, those little acts of kindness, those moments of bravery and courage and ingenuity and, uh, and humour, you know, someone that can say just the right thing at just the right moment that, you know, brings everybody's spirits back. Um, you know, these are incredible things that are hard to construct and are hard to know until you know it about someone. So how do you, yeah, how do you know that in advance? And the sort of key things that I've always fa fallen back on, and I know it's, it's not very popular and current to say, but this kind of sixth sense you get about people, this gut feeling, you know, this is someone that I can get on with in a tent for six weeks. I think often I have put that above someone's skill set on paper um, because, you know, it doesn't matter if someone has got a million years experience and exactly the skill and the knowledge that you need. If it's someone that you're just not going to get along with for whatever reason, that's never going to be a successful team. Um, so I, I've really learned to sort of listen to that inner voice a lot more. And also on the other end of things. So once you have got your team together, 
when someone isn't working out, you know, when there is consistently a problem and it's not getting any better, um, you know, I am far quicker now to go, okay, this isn't working, I'm calling it. Um, Whereas years ago, you know, I was really worried about doing that. I thought that spelled failure in some respect. You know, if I couldn't make this relationship work, then I'd failed. Um, But, you know, now I've just come to accept and be, you know, at peace with myself that sometimes, you know, it just doesn't work out. And we shouldn't be surprised, really, because we're working under huge pressures. We're taking on massive challenges with people that you don't know very well before you start. So, you know, by the law of probability, you know, that isn't going to be perfect every time. Um, But I've been very fortunate that in the vast majority of cases, um, you know, expeditions have given me some of the most amazing relationships and friendships with people um, and with people that I would never probably have met in any other way. And it is those relationships, it is that team that makes an expedition so wonderful and so memorable. You know, without those characters, without that input, without that insight and diversity and wonderful things that they bring, um, you know, what would you have? Uh, You'd have a holiday. And, uh, you know, so, um, yeah, teams are very precious to me. And I feel very grateful for the people that I've traveled with that have made it so amazing. I think that's why it's so hard to create like a cookbook for a team because, you know, it it depends on on the people there. And and I've put together some quite large teams and I've always tried to, uh, you know, think about the people I've already got on my team so I'm not just putting, you know, eight or nine identical characters together because that is never going to work, you know, not in a million years. Um, so you, you need, you know, one joker. You need one very fastidious person. You need uh, one person um, who's very tidy, one person who maybe is a bit more get it done and let's move on kind of thing. Um, you know, you, you need that big mix uh, and, and in all ways. Um, and, you know, I've tried to push that to the max with my expeditions in terms of diversity of age, diversity of background, diversity of culture, language, beliefs, you know, whatever, in any way I can think of. Um, and in every time it's made the experience and the project better for that big mix, you know. Um, so it's definitely the way forward is to really push, you know, the, the mix in your team because the bigger mix you can get, the, the better it's going to be. One of the important things I think in expedition planning is to say, look, well, particularly if you can't afford it and it's subject to funding by somebody else, is to say to people, if you offer them a place on the expedition or you agree agree that you're planning it together, I would say their place is conditional. A really good thing to do is to make their place conditional for getting funding in this year or next year or whenever it is you're planning to go. If you haven't got the money when you you originally planned to go and you need to postpone the expedition, expedition by a year, those places are no longer, those places can be up for grabs again. And if people haven't contributed to the fundraising or you haven't realised that actually they snore every time you go camping with them and you're just really irritating. So you can, you've got a chance to refresh or find someone, some, find someone who can do a job better. But, I would, but a big part of it is personality. You're going to go and live and work um, 24 hours together probably for a, a very intense period of your lives where... 
things come out about people's personalities and character that you perhaps haven't seen beforehand. So you did it's really good to go and do some testing. Go and do some go go camping in your home country and go to the nearest national park or a bit of countryside and do something difficult for a weekend and find out about people, whether you're compatible with people or not. Find out how selfish people are, if they've got a sense of humor or any enthusiasm for what you're what you're doing. Can they take initiative? What experience have they got? Um, are they reliable? Are they loyal to you? Um, and really key is flexibility and adaptability because we're talking about expedition planning, but when you when when you, if things will go wrong, you will have to adapt and throw away the plan you started started with last night in the morning and say, okay, well we can't do any of those things today, so we're starting again. And just having some adaptability is. Uh, is, is critical. And with some undesirable characters, characteristics, it should be, it's also useful to, to find, like selfishness and aloofness. Um, and then there's practical things like money. Uh, do they, are they really skilled at what you're doing? Is this the, the, the orchid botanist that you really want to bring? Um, or are they a keen amateur who's actually got quite a lot of money who could, who could contribute to funding? Or are they, have they got, business connections and got a good chance of raising the money and maybe you've got one person who's really going to get the money and everybody else is bringing is bringing is got the hardcore skills so spend time together and don't offer confirmed places to people right at the start when you first meet them um spend time get out and go camping carry heavy rucksacks uphill and wake them up in the middle of the night and tell them there's an emergency and See what happens, you know, simple, really simple old, old, you know, things that people have been doing for things like army selection for hundreds of years are still valid in trying to just, just find out whether people have got a sense of humour or, 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 or brittle and inflexible. Because it's, it, and if you get a red flag before you go, deal with it before you go. It's much, much better to say, I'm really sorry, I don't think this is going to work here than before you before you've spent a fortune traveling to the to the other side of the world. And you don't need to be friends. I mean, uh, uh, Michael Collins, who was the, who's the unforgotten, if you like, or the, uh, often unforgotten third astronaut on the Apollo 11 mission, said something really pithy about, you do not need to be great friends to, to live and work together towards a common goal very effectively on a project for a, you know, for a finite amount of time. That's not exactly what he said, but that was his point. I think that's, that, that's true. How important do you think it is to hire guides, whether those are, for example, qualified mountain guides or polar guides or local people who understand that region in a way that you won't? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole variety of guides out there. I mean, on the hiring local guides, I would say, well, how about sort of creating collaborations rather than just hiring a local person to show you where to go? You know, make it deeper than that. You know, collaborate with people that are there rather than sort of, yeah, marching in and taking your information off somewhere else. Um, It makes it uh, much more enriching and wonderful and successful experience if you're collaborating and working with people in meaningful ways, I've, I've found. I tell you why I think it's critical is that we need to understand our planet in a shared way. And it's if you don't engage at a local level, I think there's an element of trespass. And I say that, that in the past one got permission to go and do scientific work in, in areas of the world. And, and don't forget, we're really talking about undergraduate and postgraduate 
or what I call entry-level geographical surveys. I'm not talking about, you know, big United Nations surveys. This is the breeding ground for the people who are going to lead those bigger surveys in one day. But unless you've engaged in the thought locally and shared it at a local level, then in a sense the world of field science remains in a slightly NATO world. And I think that's wrong. That isn't happening, I can tell you. Why I'm optimistic. I have the privilege to work in East Africa and Oman right now. There is just the next gen of incredible field scientists. Critical thinking, moral courage, brave, harnessing the new technologies, being outstanding at being able to do podcasts, much better than I have ever done. Uh, really savvy of sharing stuff on social media. Unbelievable. So um, to answer your question, I don't think, unless we do work together globally as Nations United, we're not going to save the world. So it's actually about shared knowledge globally to recognize that we're all in this together. And in my own personal experience, building teams is actually a skill set in and of itself. What do you think are the most important things to look for in high-quality team members? You know, top, top of the list there is being able to empathize with others. Um, you know, but I mean, now we're getting into sort of leadership styles and things as well. But particularly, you know, if someone is in a kind of leadership role, um, if they don't take the time to get to know why everybody is there, you know, well, I mean, there's something that we go through with our teams that works really well. And we make the time to talk about, you know, what, what makes you angry? You know, what puts you in a place of anger? Because um, it's so different for everyone. But then more importantly, how can I get you back on board? You know, once once you're annoyed with the team and you feel disenfranchised, you know, how can I get you back in the fold? And, you know, it's so different for different people. Like some people say, I just want to be left alone and I will come to you when I'm ready and I'll tell you what, I need to ha- what needs to happen. Whereas other people say, I need my opportunity to stand up in front of everyone and tell you what my problem is and have that acknowledged that this is the problem and we're going to solve it. And you can see how, you know, if you approach people in the wrong way, um, you can make, you know, a small bit of friction a whole lot worse and maybe unrecoverable if you go about it the wrong way. So, um, yeah, we try and make time to do that without it, you know, to get to know each other on that kind of level, because uh, it always pays dividends. You know, the time to do that is not when you're, you know, standing on an ice sheet somewhere facing a crisis. Um, you know, you need to know that stuff about people beforehand. And Steve, in your experience, I'm sure you've seen a lot of it, but what are the main things people get wrong? Um, people are overambitious. They plan to do things that they really haven't got the... They haven't done the, the step lowest rungs of the ladder to build experience to to really be competent in the decision making about taking on that objective, and that's why I'm such an enthusiast for people starting small and that you, don't, you know you're firstly mountaining is easy because everyone can understand the idea of climbing climb a mountain, but don't you know your first expedition should be to the Himalayas? You should have got several years of experience climbing in European Alps or nearest big mountain range, gaining experience and, and getting your skills up to speed before you decide to head off. There's no, you don't need to take a shortcut to having great experiences. Take it slowly and build experience. I suppose some of it as well is that it's not fear of missing out. It's almost like it's 
social media. You're looking at what everybody else is doing and just thinking, wow, I've got to do something that big or that grand. But actually, I don't know about you, but personally, some of my favorite expeditions, trips, journeys, projects have been the little ones or some of the key moments, favorite moments ever have been the little ones. And I think there is an element of the law of diminishing returns with this stuff. You know, if you tick all the biggest stuff between 18 and 24, well, where are you going to go from there? You know, it is a marathon, not a sprint, this stuff, I think. And, and I've got this uh, concept called um, uh, an adventure threshold. And everybody has an adventure threshold. If you're taking a group of young people from uh, an inner city area who've never seen a cow or a donkey or a horse in a field before, you don't need to take them to Morocco on, their, on, the, on the school trip or their first expedition. You can, you know, you can take them to country, a bit of countryside in Hertfordshire and it'll be an adventure. So you don't need to be going off to another continent if you haven't explored your own your own country. And uh, for sitting here in, in, in Britain, there's such a brilliant wilderness and uplands in, in, in Scotland and North and Mid Wales and to go and explore. You can do really good expedition training and have really amazing experiences in, you know, in, 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 in Britain, particularly think of Wilderness Scotland, which is just one of the best places in the world to go on expedition. And it's actually, we, we forget about it because it's, it's, it's just up the road. One of the things which I think this is really important to tie in and to think about and discuss it with your expedition team and your funders and supporters beforehand is, is really ethical. And that is if you say you're setting, setting off to, we've been talking about this fictitious expedition to go and look at orchids in in New Britain, and in fact you only get the money to go to Dorset, then who? Then, then you've got some obligations. And those are to yourself, to your family, friends and supporters, and people who, who are backing the expedition, and to your website and your, and your social media. And I think it's really important to be honest with yourself and with everybody around you about what your original aim is, if it changes, you can't afford to do it, something's gone wrong, update people and update your social media and your website and say, this is what's happened. We're unable to do, do our original aim. We're doing the best that we can and we're, and we're compromising and this is what we're going to do instead. Or, and when you get back, it may be that that's the, the first opportunity you've got to actually say, well, we didn't achieve our main aim because X, Y, Z, but we did this instead. We did the best we could. People won't mind, or almost nobody will mind, and nobody will judge you if, as long as you're honest about saying what you were planning to do and what you've actually done. Uh, and it's really important. And I see so many expeditions in all sorts of fields get into massive difficulty after their expedition because there's a mismatch between what they said they were going to do and what they've actually done. I've, I've been subjected to my fair bit of criticism over the years by people. And what I find most often is the people that are often pushing the criticism are people that have never been in that situation themselves, you know, have never put together their own expedition, have never been the one that's had to make those difficult decisions. And, you know, once you have been in that position, I think it makes you a much better leader, but it also makes you a much better team player because, you know, the next time you are involved in a project where somebody else is leading, you can much uh, more effectively 
think about what can I do to support that person and what can I do to make this project successful. Um, and it makes you a much more useful person to, to be on to be on a team. And so you know, bringing it back to talking about people who are setting out to plan their own expedition, I think it's really valid to say, look, go out and do your own thing. It might not be the big, ambitious, oh, we're going to climb a Himalayan peak that you want to do unguided, but you know, do some kind of trip where you don't have somebody who is going to step in if you do something wrong. Because as soon as you feel the weight of knowing that whatever happens is absolutely down to you. You know, there is no one else that is going to step in and save you. And there's no one else that's going to mess it up for you either. You know, you are responsible for success or failure for whether it works or whether it doesn't. Because I think that experience is so informative and just sets you up. Whatever you decide to do next, whether you decide to, you know, continue along independent expeditions that you've planned yourself or whether you decide, you know, to do it a different way, um, that's you're still going to gain so much benefit from having done that, what we're terming an apprenticeship, you know, where you've put together your own trip and you've gone out there and, and challenged yourself and, and done it by yourself without someone looking over your shoulder. And Steve, I think it's quite important to talk about coming home. And there's actually a whole episode dedicated to this. So I don't want to go into it in detail from a personal perspective now, um, in terms of the how do we actually decompress post-expedition blues and, and all of those important subjects that I don't think are talked about enough. But when it comes to the people that have helped you and the commitments that you made to people, how can you repay those people for the time, the effort, the energy, the skill and the advice that they gave you? plan to take some postcards or take get, you can really cheaply get some expedition postcards or project postcards printed before you go make and make a commitment to sending a thank you or an update from the country that you're going to which means buying those old-fashioned things called stamps and taking postcards or buying them and writing them and getting them all posted possibly in the capital city when you first arrive just to say we well, you know we're on expedition we've arrived we're going thank you so much for all your support now and whatever commitments you've made to give people reports, feedback, photographs afterwards, what, there's a reason why nobody does it, or very, very few people do it. It's because when you come back from expedition, you've got to re-enter normal life and probably go back to work or go back to university, and there's no time in the timetable for doing that work. And writing the report is just gets put on the back burner. You intend to do it, but actually never quite get around to finishing it. And you... So the solution to that is to put in some put the, put the time put some days into the timetable when you're planning the expedition to give you two or three days or however long you think you need to organise the post expedition admin straight after you get back, finish writing up the accounts, sorting out the finances with everybody else, sending quick reports and thank you letters and digital pictures or whatever it is to everybody, and this is like another great virtuous circle because all so companies are so used to being continuously let down their expectations are so low of getting the thing back if you do they'll a remember you and b it can be a start of an ongoing relationship and support for the rest of your adventuring and expeditioning and fieldwork careers rather than just a one-off where oh, goes, oh yeah we gave we gave that guy some something and we never heard from him again which is uh which is pretty normal. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. I think most of us have been guilty of that in the past. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so... You just need to timetable some time 
time time to do it. And the, and the other related thing I want to say about that was in terms of sponsorship. It's very easy to think, oh, I'm really excited about going on, planning my expedition to go and look at the orchids, orchids in uh, New Britain. Uh, okay, I need... I, I saw that explorer. He looked great in whatever. I'm just going to look up what jacket he was wearing. I'm going to write to the company and ask for some of those. And I'm going to write to these people to get some free socks. And I need a new water bottle. And I'd like a, I'd like a camera. I don't really care whether which brand it is. And you can waste your life, or all with planning time available, trying to get a free kit. When if you haven't got enough money to buy the airfares and pay for the insurance and buy one or two vital pieces of equipment, possibly some rent a satellite phone or something for safety cover then you're not going anyway. So if, 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 you, if you're going to do a project that you can't afford, spend, prioritise all of your planning time on getting the money sorted out. And then if you get a bit more money, you can go and buy the camera or buy the socks that you want. And rather than having wasted a month's worth of evenings trying to get a you know, free, free jacket off somebody, it's just a complete waste of time. Sort out the big money first and then the trip will happen. I think often with big grand plans or bold audacious ideas, there's often this thing in the back of our head that says, oh, it can wait, we don't need to do it now, maybe next year. But actually, Nigel, do you think we need to feel a sense of urgency? We need to be using every bit of new technology, from drones to camera traps to apps on our phones to multilingual documents to share all our reports in in ex- infinite number of languages so that we're all up to date on what is what is there. The big change today for me of why it's more urgent is that the world is changing faster than ever before. And I had no idea when we did this the first those early trips, in this case across the Sahara, uh, that the world would change so fast by the time I was 71. So that to me is there's an there's an urgency. But I remain positive because we have new tools in our in our rucksack of life to explore yeah and i'm interested in whether or not you'd encourage other people to follow in similar footsteps to you i'm excited by the next gen i'm excited by the fact that if i was 20 today the resources to do some really original exploration is outstanding so i i think the key two key messages really the value and urgency of international interdisciplinary fieldwork and the opportunities for students and undergraduates to make a real difference during their time at school and university. So there's a call on that. And secondly, the value and magic of co-planning your own team, bringing a team together and, that, and project, um, and all the benefits that that gives, despite the additional hard work. It's harder work. It is, but I promise you it's worth it. If you create a choir, if you create a multidisciplinary team, you do two plus two makes six, and that will, you'll have that for life. And to do that as a, as a student is a really great thing to, to do as you aim high to, to be an Attenborough or a Colombo. It ends, this is the important thing, on that particular project when you hand over the list of your discoveries to your host in whatever way you want to do it. Anyway, I, I, I think today is the, it's, it's more than the golden age, it's the important age of exploration. And the more we can do to inspire, if you like, the next gen 
to do purposeful work that they're proud of, uh, the better. Thanks for listening. For more information or to get started with your own expedition or field research project, head to rgs.org. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Laura Jacob for Terra Incognita Publishing and produced by Shane Windsor and Laura Melville for the RGS. It's a Terra Incognita Publishing production for RGS with IBG.